Hello and welcome to the Information Podcast. Today we've got an extra special episode. Tim is out at dinner with an investor, an investor we've been trying to court for a long time, and I'm very excited to see what happens there. So you've got just me, Brang Reynolds, CTO of Information Technological Holdings, here with Fritz AI. Fritz AI is democratizing artificial intelligence and making artificial intelligence models available on device. I'm here with co-founders Jameson Tool and Dan Abdenor. We're going to be talking about the overall industry of artificial intelligence. What are some of the challenges? What are some of the risks? And what are some of the things that can be accomplished when artificial intelligence is made available on device? So in your experience, you know, having worked in AI and having built this product, which is for AI developers, can you talk about some of the good use cases for ML that you've seen? Yeah, so I think one of the best categories of things moving forward is going to be to take uh, one minute of an expert's time or the type of problem that you could train a dog to do. So if you think about cases like something like Shazam, for example, you could train a computer to recognize songs, which anybody who had heard that song before would be able to do. The difference is, because this is software, you now have unlimited distribution. So we can train an algorithm to be as good as one minute of a you know x-ray technician's time and distribute it throughout the entire world via software with almost no costs. Um, and that means we can really just multiply the effect of any knowledge anywhere. We can take large mm -hmm. amounts of training, large amounts of data, put it into a trained model, put it anywhere in the world uh, as long as you have the ability to to access you know the internet at some point. You don't even have to be online to run it. Right, that, that's one of the things that's so great about what you guys are building at Fritz, that you're able to actually run these models on the device. Let's dive into how ML works a little bit and talk about the different phases of ML. So I know in our emails before this, you mentioned the difference between training and inference. Can you talk about what that means? Yeah, so in the beginning, you know, just like when we we're born, uh, the model knows nothing about the world. <laughs> it has no idea what it's trying to predict. It doesn't know what's up or down, right or wrong. Uh, and so the beginning phase, the first phase of this is to train it, to recognize things, to do the classification, to predict some output. And uh, you know, typically this requires a lot of data. Uh, in some cases, that data may be labeled with the correct answer, uh, in which case we call this you know, supervised learning, where we have a set of data where we know the answer initially. Um, there's other types of machine learning called unsupervised learning, where you're just looking for statistical patterns and correlations in, in the data. Um, but you know, this process involves iterating over your data set over and over and over and over again uh, to the point where you are modifying parameters in your machine learning model such that uh, the output of, of these models is a good prediction. And we have all sorts of metrics mm -hmm. that you get to choose what you care about in terms of accuracy, speed, you know, whatever. Um, but it's just a very iterative process. Um, and it requires a lot of data, it requires a lot of compute power. Um, and that's typically, you know, done in the cloud on these large machines. You know, that's the, the training side of things. After you have trained your model and you've achieved some level of accuracy that you feel is sufficient for your use case, you essentially freeze everything. 
So uh, you fix all of the parameters, uh, you fix all of the architecture, and you move over to the second phase, which is called inference. And in this phase, uh, nothing about the model is really changing. You're just putting data in and getting predictions out. And so this is when you start putting everything into production, uh, and you're serving many, many requests with this. Um, you know, it's one or two examples at a time as people use your app uh, or you know, make predictions. You're not going over this massive data set anymore. Um, and so it requires a different set of uh, you know, technical systems to manage. Um, and then, of course, there's a feedback loop between all of this. So as you're using your model in the inference phase, you're collecting all of the data, um, and you want, over time, to gather that, check it for errors, um, and then eventually train your model again, update things, and repeat. So what I love about the ML community, and in particular this time in history, is that traditionally, in order to engage in machine learning, it's required a very high degree of math knowledge. It's required a very deep understanding of the algorithms involved. Uh, and we're getting to a point now where companies like you, companies like Amazon, companies like Google are starting to uh, bring out tools that people can use to ultimately be creating their own machine learning models where they don't necessarily need to understand this deep level of math or algorithm, science, anything there. Uh, can you talk about some of that shift that you've been seeing in the way that you're a part of it? Yeah, it's definitely true that you know when I started doing this maybe 10 years ago at this point, um, it was much tougher sledding when it comes to getting things even prototyped, you know, much less out, out into production. And I think you know, the reason that you're seeing all of these companies invest in, in tools is just because of how useful uh, you know, this approach to, to engineering and problem solving really is. Um, and so you know, I've seen the, the community grow from these proprietary tools like MATLAB and uh, Mathematica through uh, open source projects like R, then Python and the rise of the scientific Python stack with NumPy and SciPy and Matplotlib and Pandas, um, you know, now to TensorFlow and Spark and then you know, all of the managed versions of this sort of thing that they have available uh, in, in AWS and now through Fritz. And you know, I think this mostly speaks to just sort of the broader adoption of machine learning as a tool to build great businesses, great features, great experiences. And you know, we want to continue to, to lower the bar on that sort of thing. You know, I think there's a, a broader shift that's happening um, in just sort of software development right now, where you know, back when I started this, it was uh, data lakes and data warehouses, and you talked a lot about big data, and you were crunching all of these numbers and creating reports that would then get handed off to an executive team, and they would sort of make strategic decisions um, that would get implemented over time, you know, over a period of weeks or quarters. But now what we do is we do these analyses uh, and then build machine learning models to predict user behavior or churn or whatever it is, but those models then go directly into the applications and change the application mm -hmm. behavior themselves. Um, and the feedback loop is just much, uh, much tighter today. And so you know, what you're seeing is machine learning moving into the application layer uh, as opposed to this like, very sort of siloed backend. And that requires a lot more software engineers to start touching machine learning and now uh, deep learning. And they need tools to, to help with that. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned that that was one of the things I found so frustrating about the big data movement was 
people were building all of these tools to analyze massive data sets. People were collecting massive data sets and they were doing interesting analyses on them, but the actual ability to execute on them, the actual ability to shift that into action was just sort of lacking. And I feel like uh, there weren't enough people who were building actual end-to-end -end use cases for big data. All we were seeing were these tools. What, what are we doing here to prevent that from happening to the machine learning movement? You know, you guys are working on building a tool what are ways that you're reaching out to the community to ensure that this tool actually gets used in actionable ways? We just think at this point, it's important to let people know that there's another crayon that they can draw with, that there are problems they can solve with machine learning that have probably already been on their mind. You know, wouldn't it be great if we could solve that particular problem? And with the advent mm -hmm. of all the ML stack, you're actually able to solve those problems and run it you know, efficient, efficiently and cost effectively at scale, you can serve all of your customers a facial detection algorithm. You can serve all of your customers a voice recognition algorithm. Those types of things were previously only approachable by very large companies with infinite resources. And we've seen a democratization in the underlying tools which have enabled a company like, a company like Fritz to build a version for everyone. Um, you know, specifically we're focused on the, the sort of edged version of this but really there are packaged and available solutions so that people without deep and multi-year ML experience can get their application to production. And we think users will do the rest. When you can create a better user experience or a more compelling application, everyone will use it and people will want it and it will stick around. And conversely, you can't force new technology down someone's throat if it doesn't actually make for a better user experience or a more engaging you know, application. Totally. Yeah, that's so incredibly powerful, just uh, creating this, you know, fundamental democratization of this technology. Can you talk about some of the technological developments we've seen over maybe the past five, 10 years that have led to this shift? We needed to collect all of this data, right? Um, and so the proliferation of web apps and you know mobile apps and the fact that your smartphone has all of these sensors in it, you know, they really just created these massive, massive data sets over the last decade uh, that you, know, you can start to use to try to understand user behavior. Uh, and then more recently, um, you know, deep learning has really come back into the forefront. Uh, so like neural networks were actually invented back in the late 60s. Um, and then there was a few what they call these AI winters where uh, there just wasn't enough data around or there wasn't enough compute power to train these models. And so things kind of fell by the wayside. But uh, in the last five years, we've really uh, hit this inflection point where there is enough data and there is enough compute to, to train these things effectively. And so you're sort of seeing this massive resurgence in people using these these techniques uh, so that's sort of on the development side of things on you know the the silicon side of things there's also been some major advances you know so uh, in the cloud google is rolling out their tpus their tensor processing units which are like a specialized uh, chip um, that are really just designed to do the sorts of calculations that are required for machine learning and now there are you know mobile friendly versions of these where every high-end flagship 
phone right now uh, is coming equipped with processors specifically designed to accelerate machine learning calculations. What do we expect to see in the next five years? What do you think are some of the developments that are on the forefront that are going to shift the way that we think about it for the years to come? So one of the things that I think has been published recently that really is worth looking into is uh, a piece Pete Warden wrote about the future of ML and AI inference being very small. And essentially the point he's trying to make is uh, the way that these neural networks run, it's all fixed. We understand how many computations are gonna be required to do an inference. And that allows us to make certain optimizations to do them faster, cheaper, more energy efficient. Um, there have been developments in things like obviously GPUs and now neural network cores but also things like fully programmable gate arrays. So FPGAs are ways of taking a neural network and storing it for faster computation. I think we're gonna really see an acceleration in the number of uh, neural network processors and potentially F FPGA-based processors. And then, as Jameson mentioned, there's the Google TPU. Well, you know, the team that developed their TPU in-house, which is gonna keep it inside their cloud, has also developed a smaller version that they're gonna uh, license out, we believe, for other people with edge devices to use. So that all just boils down to being able to run neural networks um, or really any kind of ML inference uh, on devices really fast with a really well understood amount of energy, which enables us to put them in all different devices, um, everything from you know advanced devices like cell phones on down to simple things like um, temperature sensors that go in your refrigerator. And on the, you know, so that's sort of the hardware side of things on the, you know, what problems can machine learning solve uh, side of things. There's uh, a really, really great report that everyone should check out. Um, the EFF uh, puts it out. It's called like EFF AI metrics or AI progress report. And they essentially go through, you know, all of these different tasks that we might ask a machine learning model to do. So label this image, find all of the people in this image. Um, they have hundreds and hundreds and th like almost a thousand plus citations at this point, I think, where they go through all of the research papers and painstakingly plot out uh, the accuracy of every new model that gets put out you know, on the market and then compare that to human um, levels of accuracy. And so you know, this report can essentially tell you, you know, what problem has been solved in the sense that a computer can now do it as well or better than a human. And what you see is that there are certain tasks uh, which you know aren't very complex, things like image labeling or object detection, that you know computers three or four years ago have basically surpassed humans. But there are other more open-ended type questions, like where I I would ask, you know, is the person in this picture pointing up? It's a much more you know mm -hmm. it's a yes or no uh, answer, but it's it requires knowing a lot more complex um, uh, concepts, and those tasks we haven't quite cracked yet, right? Uh, and we're making progress. You can get you know, 50, 60, 70% of the way there, but it's not at the 95% that, that a human could get. And so um, you know, they've done a really great job, the EFF has, of just going through all of these things, explaining very clearly what the task is, and then providing some benchmarks in terms of like where is, is the progress. And I think you're just gonna see you know, the steady march of, of chipping away at some of these more open-ended tasks that computers will, will learn how to do. Can you talk a little bit about some of the ways that people get ML wrong? Um, so, I mean, a common use case, which we kind of talked about, are just sort of expecting 
algorithms to work on these more open-ended questions, right? Um, you know, and that's just a matter of the technology not not being there yet. So the more well-defined you can make a problem, uh, the better the chance that machine learning is going to, to be able to solve it. Um, you know, the the other piece that comes up quite frequently and more so now is um, people just not not looking for bias in in their models. Um, you know, there's a lot of sensational headlines on, on both sides of this, but uh, you know it is true that your model is only going to be as good as the data that you put into it, and like that data is generated by humans, and we are fallible and we have biases, and so those will creep into your to your models as well. Um, and I think we have the tools that we need; like people can check that stuff uh, ahead of time and and should. So let's shift focus a little bit here. Let's talk about Fritz. Tell us what is Fritz AI? What are you guys trying to do? Yeah, so Fritz is a platform to help developers put machine learning models directly into their mobile apps. So by directly, we mean the models themselves are running on the device, there's no cloud involved, uh, it's real time, and uh, all of the data stays right there. Um, so when you think about use cases like Snapchat, right? They detect your face, they put a dog filter on it, all that happens in live video, and the only way you can do that is if you run things right on the device itself and you don't wait for things to go back up to the cloud and uh, beam down to your phone again. So we make it easier for developers to build those experiences in their mobile apps. Got it, so you really are democratizing machine learning and putting it in the hands of non-experts. Yeah, we couldn't say it better ourselves, that feels good. That, that's awesome. Um, so can you talk about some of the things that people are doing with Fritz? What's your favorite application that somebody's built using the SDK? Yeah, so we're talking about a few of the customers that we launch with right now. Um, you know, my personal favorite one of those is uh, an application called Nuru by a group called Plant Village. They're a spin out of uh, University of Pennsylvania and they're partnered with the UN to detect crop diseases using Android devices. So the idea is in uh, Africa, there are lots of farmers and they're growing crops that are necessary for the, the, the food system. However, sometimes they lose crops due to different types of diseases that either they cannot identify or they don't know the right treatment for. And some of this stuff is ambiguous. It's, it's honestly hard to tell the difference between blight and an armyworm, which are things that this application can help them detect. So they were able to make really good models to find and detect these types of diseases. And then they use Fritz to help get it into every farmer's hands. So anybody with an Android device can download the application when they're on a Wi-Fi network, but then take it out into the field, point it at their plants, get a diagnosis, also get the treatment, all while being offline and completely you know, detached from the internet. So that's incredibly powerful, and we hope that's gonna make a big difference in people's lives and in the food system. So unsurprisingly, that's one of our favorite applications that's using Fritz right now. Um, the other one that Jameson yeah. mentioned earlier is Instasaver. It's a artificial, uh, augmented reality slash mixed reality app that just does a really cool lightsaber impression using a rolled up piece of paper. And there's actually some very advanced hand tracking and motion tracking technology that's going in there. Uh, and then the third uh, launch customer that we're talking about is called MD Acne. And they essentially put a dermatologist into anyone's pocket. So if you have a case of acne and you want to get the right skin treatment, you want to both diagnose what's going on with your skin and then figure out what you can do to improve it. This allows you to stay on top of it using um, you know, image detection or, or sorry, object detection. They can find every blemish on your face 
and then track it over time and see if things are getting better or worse and actually make changes to your skincare regimen accordingly. So, you know, imagine being able to afford to go to the dermatologist every week. That's what this app is unlocked for people. Got it. So you can actually track the individual pimples on your face get a nice chart of them over time and hopefully see that going down. Yeah, and all of these are a good case of something that a one minute length of an expert's time would be able to do, right? An expert in the field could look at a crop and tell you what's going on. A dermatologist in the room with you could look at your face and tell what's going on. But we're trying to get infinite distribution. You can train a machine learning model to do this so you can put it in everybody's mobile phone. Got it, so it's very much the same thing you know, that we were attempting to accomplish with the industrial revolution of taking things that, you know, required a lot of human labor and just kind of packaging it into something that can, you know, be run by machine uh, and ultimately make life better for people. Since you've started, have other people started to, you know, sort of copy you and, and try to do sort of the same thing? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, uh, we're pretty uh, honored that Google has also realized that this is a, a great thing for them to be doing. Um, so, of course, you know, Google maintains TensorFlow and they have mobile friendly versions, uh, mobile flavors of, of TensorFlow, TensorFlow Mobile and TensorFlow Lite. And uh, they package some of that up into um, something within Firebase called MLKit. Uh, and then there's also been a lot of new tools come out on the training side of things. So one thing that Fritz doesn't do is is we don't train models right now. We just focus on the inference side and you know deployment and management on on the edge. Uh, there's a lot of great tools out there uh, for training now. You know even ones that are completely visual inf uh, interfaces that don't require any programming or mathematics or anything like that. Um, you know we love to see more tools that just again democratize and make make it easier to get models out into the world. And so what's your long-term vision? What, what do you see Fritz doing for the next five, 10 years? We think we can be the software layer that helps people get machine learning onto any device. And even just looking at today, let alone looking in the future, there are a lot of different places that you can run ML models. And getting them all there is a lot of work. And we just think that customers are gonna absolutely love not having to deal with all of the different intricacies. So we can offer a single unified platform that you can give an ML model to, and we'll make sure there's an SDK that lives on any target platform that you're trying to get to, whether that be you know mobile now or IoT in the future. We started with iOS and Android, and those are fully available to any developer today. We're not making any announcements today about the IoT future, but we're certainly gonna get involved there. Let's talk a little bit about some of the long-term impacts of ML development. You already mentioned the idea of bias in data collection posing a potential threat. What is it that we can do as developers to ensure that the models we're creating aren't just magnifying biases, especially as ML starts to be used in more higher risk areas like the war on terror, criminal justice, legal proceedings, all of these things where you know the end consequences can be really severe. I think the first step is just recognizing that uh, just because we had a computer do this doesn't mean that it's bias free, and you know luckily that is getting a lot more consideration by people that are designing the algorithms and implementing them. 
And so, you know, more visibility there, I think, is, is always better. And, uh, you know, the same researchers that have been building these models and training these models are also, uh, you know, proposing, at the very least, uh, automated, you know, ways of detecting this type of bias and testing these things. And so, um, you know, there's a number of projects that have sprung up um, that are automated tests where there are, you know, face recognition databases that have, uh, you know, very good representation across gender, race, age, you know, all sorts of things like that. And so you can take your model and you can run it through that and you can get a, a score, uh, you know, that can quantify the amount of bias in there and, you know, show you how to improve. And so, you know, mm -hmm. I do think there is a chance to build tools uh, that can identify these problems and then ultimately solve them. Uh, but then, you know, at the end of the day, uh, these are tools and we are humans, you know, that are using them in either our policymaking or, uh, you know, the, the actual outcomes. And, you know, they can magnify whatever it is, uh, you know, that is currently uh, the zeitgeist in, in society, right? And so, um, mm -hmm. you know, if we are using them, if we are interested in doing nefarious things, then we will use these tools to do nefarious things. If we are interested in doing, uh, mm -hmm. you know, good things, then we will use these tools to, to do good things. But I think the more light that we can shine on to uh, these, con like the the models and what they're doing and what consequences might be, the better. Yeah, on that subject uh, about things that you know are kind of more double-edged and not clearly good, not clearly bad. How about things like job displacement? We mentioned, you know, ultimately building things that normally take a minute of an expert's time. If we devalue those experts, they ultimately, you know, may lose their jobs and not have adequate replacements. In general, I personally feel that, you know, you're creating value when, when you're able to displace a job, but there really is a real risk there. What can we do to ensure that these risks aren't being felt and aren't damaging society? That's definitely a really deep topic. And, you know, at the surface level, I believe that any time we're helping move that one minute of expert's time out to software, we're really just multiplying the effects of that expert. And we're allowing them to do the second phase of that. So you might be able to diagnose a problem, but you'd want to still be able to see a doctor um, to get the help, or you might be able to come up with a cool song idea you know, using a, a generational network, but then you want to have a real musician go on and rework it. So I think of them as empowering tools as opposed to you know, job replacing tools. But I also think in the long term, you know, we need to be prepared for the impacts of this knowledge economy, which are that we're no longer done with our lives after 12 years of education. We have to continue to use the tools we have and get better so we can go farther. And that means, you know, if AI enables us to take tier one support away from a customer support rep, we can reskill that person into being tier two support, tier three support, and, and find ways to continue to educate and make, make the human brains that we have available, which are very good at lots of different problems, make them live up to their full potential. Cool. Yeah, I think that that definitely makes a lot of sense. I do worry sometimes about the the drivers, uh, you know, uh, many people in my family were professional drivers and so I had always wondered about what happens to them. It's been one of the most reliable jobs and yet it appears that we've opened Pandora's box on this subject and there's no going back. Well, we've now strayed, I think, squarely outside of the realm of <laughs> machine learning and artificial intelligence. Uh, I do have a degree in economics, but it's not, not, not policy. Um, you know, I, I think 
first of all, uh, just from a technology perspective, uh, we're probably further away from fully autonomous, you know, trucks or, or vehicles out sharing the roads with us, um, you know, despite what you would read in, in the headlines. Um, but, you know, this... This sort of technology shift has happened over and over and over again in history. And, you know, you brought up the Industrial Revolution and, you know, we didn't spend too much time thinking about, uh, you know, all of the the farmers that we pulled from the fields uh, to, to fuel that. I think, you know, there are absolutely winners and losers to every major technology change. And it's incumbent upon us as, you know, citizens to think about ways that we can take some of the value that's being generated from these these algorithms and use it to make sure that the people that are being displaced uh, you know are have an opportunity to either retool or you know have at the very least basic necessities that they need to, to survive awesome awesome I think that definitely you know is a great way to put it uh, should we be worried about the singularity <laughs> no Just, no I mean now we're even further out right from the from like what AI is today, and I think you know this ties back into to the beginning, um, you know where we are very far away from uh, you know having algorithms that can generalize even to sort of you know simple problem solving tasks. I mean there are some very interesting research articles out there today you know that show that you can change a single pixel in an image and trick a computer into thinking that a picture of a cat is a picture of guacamole. Just one pixel change will completely, mm-hmm. uh, you know, screw up what the what the algorithm is doing, and and you know it doesn't mean that those models aren't useful at all. I mean they're they're incredibly useful. It just means that uh, things are still fragile, and we are not anywhere close to uh, any sort of general artificial intelligence. <laughs> I think I'm most scared of a company like Boston Dynamics releasing those robot dogs. And then they will just terrorize us. But the actual AI singularity is a minor point. <laughs> I mean, I'm terrified of, you know, real organic dogs. <laughs> Can't imagine robot dogs. That was the Information Podcast. I've been your host, Brian Reynolds. If you'd like to learn more about Fritz, go to fritz.ai. That's fritz.ai.